We're working our way through the book of Acts. If you wouldn't mind turning with me, we're in chapter 22 this morning. While you're turning there, I'm wondering if there's anyone else in the room here that dislikes feeling out of place or dislikes feeling like you just don't belong in a particular situation. I uh, know that for many of us, that's kind of one of the things that you expect as you're navigating this life is different opportunities where you're just like, yeah, I just don't feel at home here. I just feel weird. If you've ever been to a party before where you're like, man, I don't know anybody. You're sipping punch in the corner. Anybody been there before? Or how about this one? Anybody have a, a particular boutique store that you've been into that sells things maybe out of your price range and you're like, man, I just feel weird. No one's acknowledging me here. Maybe that's your experience. One of my hardest ones, I'm a big car fan, and I there's a, off of the 101, there's a exotic car dealership. And I decided at one point to go look at some things that I can't afford. And uh, it was interesting to me because the guy that was working there didn't even look up from his phone or his computer the whole time I was in there. It was as if I didn't exist. I'm like, I could be rich. I'm not. But clearly, I didn't belong there. Here's one that was a real memorable one. A couple, Actually, it was just this last year for my dad's birthday. My dad's grown up being a huge Boston Celtics fan, and we decided for his birthday to get tickets to go see the Celtics when they're in town playing the Los Angeles Lakers. And so showing up at the stadium, my brother-in-law was kind enough to buy my dad actually this really bright green like uh, Celtics jacket. I show up to pick up my dad to go to the game, and I was like, where's that? Where are you? He's like, I'm not wearing that thing there. Because The environment there is pretty hostile, a lot of purple, a lot of gold, and just me and my dad there, go Celtics, go Celtics, definitely out of place. Well, I bring that up because I would propose that, and this is maybe hard for some of us to hear this this morning, that that the longer you follow Jesus Christ, the longer you walk in the way that, that he walked, and the longer you follow his lead in your life, the more and more out of place you should feel in this world. Anybody ever notice that trend as you follow him longer and longer? The more the things of this world start to feel like, yeah, that's real different from the way I think and the way I interact with people. That's, a, that's way different. There's, a, there's kind of a collision of systems when we're in this world long enough that creates kind of this like, whoa, what's going on here? When you think about Jesus' teaching when he was here on earth so often, in fact, 88 different times in the Gospels, he spoke about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, explaining to us that he was bringing to bear a kingdom that was going to be very different from the kingdom that we're accustomed to. He talked about it throughout his teaching. That was something, he's saying, man, when I'm the one that's ruling and reigning, when you're submitted to me, things are good. There's going to be some collisions. There's going to be some times where this dual citizenship, if you will, is going to feel a little bit awkward. He talked about it all over the New Testament. Philippians 3.20, we're told that our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 2.19, you are fellow citizens with the saints. 1 Peter 2.11, we're sojourners and exiles in this world. Why is that? Why is there so much tension? Because the world, the system that's been set up, what's in place here on this planet is a world that's gauged around self-gods. This life is all about me and my happiness and everything revolves around that 
that. In fact, uh, it's so revolved around that, you can't even claim any kind of a set truth. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you, like even our truth is gauged around self. And in that self-thinking, the world has come to this conclusion that I can fix self. We can fix what's broken here. We can fix this mess with a little bit more effort. If we just get the right person in office, it's all going to be solved. It's the exact opposite of what the kingdom of heaven says. The kingdom of heaven says a few opposite things that one, this life isn't about you. It's about God in his glory. It's all about him and serving others rather than serving self. That there is absolute truth and it's found in this book and the fact that we can't fix ourselves no, no matter how hard we try. It's only through the grace of Jesus' death as payment for our sins that we can be rescued. Do you see how those two worlds don't necessarily mesh so well? So that leads us to what? Kind of feeling a bit out of place, right? Feeling a little bit like, oh, I'm supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. I would suggest that's the most challenging walk for all of us that follow Jesus Christ is to figure out how to navigate that because it does come, if we're honest, with some tension because the world system that's in place, those that have set it in place, don't really like the idea of introducing a new king and a new kingdom because they're real happy with their system where they are God. Well, Paul is walking down that road before us, setting the example for how to navigate the tensions that come. We're gonna explore those this morning. And what does it look like to be a dual citizen? Because we're not quite allowed to leave yet. Let me pray before we explore this. God, we invite you to speak to us this morning through this text. And we thank you for all these examples in scripture of navigating the tension of living in a competing, a dual world. What does that look like? God, we ask that you teach us through this text that you'd be active and moving in this room, that it wouldn't be my words, but your words breaking through to people's hearts. God, we invite that and pray for that right now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So chapter 22, we're in verse 22, but before I read that, just a little recap of where we were. Last week, you remember, Paul had this uh, literally near-death experience where this crowd was so angry with him, they're beating him within an inch of his life, and he finally gets a platform to be able to address the crowd, and in that speech, instead of defending his rights and how he didn't get due process, instead, what does he do? tells a story or his testimony of God's amazing grace in his life. You remember how that story went? It had three parts. What his life looked like before Christ, what his encounter with Christ looked like, and then what did life look like after his encounter with Christ? What was his new call or direction? And you see the audience was real open to hearing about his life before Christ because they could relate with that. The encounter with Christ was pretty powerful, so they could relate with that. Pretty awesome thing. But then the whole thing, when he turned the corner to talk about his calling to minister to who? The Gentiles, they weren't really interested in hearing what he had to say anymore. That was a turning point where they went from silence to literally being fired up, verse 22, up to this word that I'm referring to there. They listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. We talked about that last week, not being a desired response of any preacher. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, 
The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Stop there for a moment for a little explanation. Basically, after mentioning the Gentiles, because it was such a a hated group there amongst the Jews, the idea of God sending a missionary to them was just unheard of. They couldn't wrap their minds around that possibility, and so they respond with this emotional response. I was looking up because it says that they were throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. I was like, well, what's the significance around that? What was the meaning behind that? Look at different commentators. They're like, hey, there's no real significant meaning other than the fact they were worked up in a mindless frenzy. This was just a display of the extreme disdain that they had for Paul and any idea of reaching out to this hated people group. So pretty intense response. So take a, a look there. What happens is that the tribune then orders him to be brought back to the barracks. So the tribune in that day and age would have been the person that was responsible. His name we're going to learn in a couple chapters later is Claudius Lysias, uh, kind of a good Roman name there. He's responsible for keeping the peace, one, and then two, kind of like a private investigator or an investigator, to investigate the claims against someone to determine whether they are accurate or false. So kind of the, kind of the, the piece of exploring that and so he, instead of going back to just have an a, a interrogation, what does it say that he sends them to do? That they're to, literally, it says, examine him by flogging. Pretty intense, right? If you know anything about the Roman culture, flogging was like the ultimate life-risking scenario where literally they used what was called a cat of nine tails. You remember that from the story of Jesus' crucifixion, kind of here's a a picture of a basically nine cords of leather on the end of those would be small stones, sharp stones, pieces of glass or bone from an animal, chips. And so literally used where one whip from that, you'd need medical care. In these scenarios, you're talking about 10 to 20 and often the person that's being questioned wouldn't survive the questioning. So pretty intense thing. So this is literally a life and death uh, situation for Paul, especially as an older gentleman. Man, this could go, this, this could be the end. A lot wouldn't survive this flogging or, or questioning. You wonder, you're like, how, why, would they, why would they impose such a, a terrible thing? Here's the thing to understand, is that the hate between Jews and Gentiles went both directions. It wasn't just the Jews hating the Gentiles. The Gentiles absolutely hated the Jews. And when they found out that basically Paul didn't have the backing of his people, all of a sudden there's like, man, there's no reason not to just unleash our wrath on this man. It's a pretty intense moment. You have to ask yourself these questions. It's like, why is it that Christians are so often just hated? You ever wondered that? You're like, what's the, what's the deal with that? Why are people so despised that follow Jesus Christ? Paul actually speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 2.15. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. I like the way that it, it's put in the New Living Translation. It says it like this. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. 
But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. Pretty powerful description, isn't it? Basically, it's saying that if we're proclaiming Christ, we literally stink to the world that's resistant to that. That's kind of a, a weird thing. The, the smell of death. Anybody ever smell something that's dead or dying? And you're just like, oh man, we, we do this hike down at Point Doom and a lot of times we'll come across a seal. Have you ever done this? That's been just kind of decomposing and you're like, oh man, that, that smell causes one of two responses. One, you're just like, I gotta get away from this. Or two, I need to get it away from me one way or the other. The smell of death is something that's always avoided. You always are resistant to that. And here's what Paul is saying. Man, to someone that's locked up in this world system that it has its grips on, the the scent of us is repelling. It's disgusting to the world around us. So we shouldn't be shocked by that. Here's the catch-22 that that leads to. Is here's for us as the believer, we kind of come to a crossroads. We can either, because you only, here's the thing to understand, we only stink when we're talking about Jesus Christ. We only stink when we're talking or expressing that Jesus Christ is the the one rescue plan. Otherwise, we don't smell much at all. So we have a choice when we're a Christ follower. We can either be a stench to people, something that smells, but then with the potential of rescuing them from an eternity separated from God and eternal judgment, you're like, well, I could either be stinky and literally have the potential of rescuing people, or I have the other option to not be stinky, be well-liked, and watch everyone around me head to eternal judgment. So do you see the crisis that we have? We have to choose which we elevate. Do we elevate the priority of being well-liked and well-received, or do we elevate the priority of rescuing people and their eternities? You see how there's a tension with that? There's a crisis, and so often we choose the easier of the two, which is what? Silence. If I don't talk, I don't stink. If I don't talk, I don't stink. And here's the danger of that is literally there's eternities on the line with this crossroad. I was having a lunch with a, a gentleman who's the regional director of Compassion International. I don't know if you've heard of Compassion. That's who we're building a church through. And uh, he was talking about their, their, uh, their logo or their uh, mission statement that's expressed here. It says, releasing children from poverty in whose name? Jesus's name. He was saying, man, you can't, I can't tell you how many different times they've been advised to have more of a global impact that they need to remove the name of Jesus from that description. You're going to be way better received. You're going to have a much wider audience if you take that name from your description. That crisis or that crossroad, they've chosen. It's fun to celebrate that with them. They've chosen to dig in their heels and say, we're not budging on that. We're not going to change because of potential drawing in more people. Because the, the, the gospel is offensive and it's important for us to understand that. And in fact, it even leads to just unbelievable responses of even violence as we see here in the text. Verse 25, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? 
See, this idea of them stretching him out, that's kind of a, a pretty graphic visual. You think about it, if you're, if you're kind of hunched up, you're way less vulnerable to being hit. But if you're stretched out, think about the, the whip and the impact that it can have on someone's back and literally ripping into their flesh. Here he's being stretched out, and you're just like, what a, what a dark, miserable time. Anybody read scripture and sometimes think to yourself, man, I am glad I did not live in that day and age. Sometimes you read some of these stories, you're like, man, I'm so thankful that that's not our reality now. Uh, is there anybody in the room that thinks that or am I the only one? Okay, just making sure we're all awake here. Uh, but, but think about that for a second. I was doing a, a little bit of research on present day statistics about martyrdom and whether that was all isolated to that time period. Here's a, a, a few sobering statistics. Between AD 33 and 1900, so basically over 1,800 years, so 1,800 years, there's about 14 million martyrs that would capture this time period that we're describing here in the text. Between 1901 and 2000, 26 million martyrs. Martyr is someone that's literally been put to death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. 26 million, 2,000 till now. So present day, you're like, well, I hope we've gotten that figured out, right? 2,000 until now, the last 18 years, we're on average 159,000 martyrs per year. We're on pace to another century of 15.9 million people dying because of their faith. And that's not even taking into account any kind of a war or any kind of a scenario that might happen in this hundred years. You see, it wasn't just something back then. It's part of the reality for many still today following Jesus Christ. That's why when we talk about worship, like, oh, thank you, God, for the privilege and the freedom to be able to come together for worship. It's not just to like, a faint statement. It's a, it's a reality that there's many that suffer present day. Some of the countries with the greatest persecution, North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran. And in those countries, man, it's, it's pretty dark. Look at the more statistics going in there about persecution. Over 21 countries around the world experiencing persecution found it interesting when we were reading up on that a little bit, that we literally, as, as a church, we have uh, missionaries that are represented from this church in seven of those 21 countries. Pretty beautiful uh, thing, thinking of that. Over 215 million Christians faced high levels of persecution just last year. So you have martyrdom, and then you have opposition. 215 million. How do you even wrap your mind around that number? One in every 12 Christians today live in an area where Christianity is illegal, forbidden, or a punishable offense. So it wasn't just something of back then that they received violence. Still today, people are in these moments that even we're talking, having to make the decision, will I die for my faith? Am I willing to die for this Jesus Christ that I follow? It's a pretty intense reality. And that's what, what Paul had concluded. He, he mentioned, he says, he said, I am not only ready to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's at the place where he's like, yeah, I'm ready to go. But here's the thing. God's not quite done with him yet. So he's like, man, I got a little bit more for you to do. So he leads Paul to pull out this uh, all of a sudden out of nowhere the ultimate trump card. And the trump card, do you see it there in the text, was mentioning this little subtle fact that he was a Roman citizen. 
I'm here just uh, asking you as how you would deal with this situation. Knowing that mentioning that could stop all of the hardship. How many of you may have mentioned that a little bit earlier on in the process? Like before you're being stretched out over a stone to be whipped, you're like, yeah, that's a, that's a worthy thing to mention. It's funny though to think about this in Paul's scenario. In Philippi, he waited to mention it till after he was beaten. Here he's deciding, you know, maybe I'll mention it before. It's almost like an, an afterthought to him. Uh, what's unique about that is in that day and age, being a Roman citizen of the top governing uh, body of the entire world in that day and time was like something that everyone took the greatest pride in. If there was something you were going to claim, that was something everyone was going to know about you, that you are a Roman citizen. It's kind of like being a Texan today. You know, like somebody from Texas, right? You, you don't have to wonder what state they're from. They have their own uniforms, you know what I mean? Like their, their own hat, the shirts, the belt buckles, the gun racks, you know, the whole nine yards. You don't wonder about that. Similar for the Roman, they're mentioning it at every possible point. Well, Paul, it's like, you know what? It's, I'm so far removed from this, it's no longer a thing. It's no longer a thing. At this crossroads, he chooses to mention it, and I love the, how subtle he is. He's like, as if he wasn't sure about the answer to his question. Just wondering, is, is a Roman citizen allowed to be bound and, and flogged? Just, just checking in with you. It's not as if he didn't know the answer to his question, but yet he still highlights that to them because in that day and age, a Roman citizen had similar rights to what an American citizen still has today, that they were considered what? innocent until proven guilty. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to ride that train for a bit here. He points out that fact that, hey, as a Roman citizen, you're not allowed to, one, uh, to, to flog me before being proven of being guilty. And two, they weren't even allowed to bind him. So even him being bound was breaking a breach of the rules. And because there are very rule-based culture, all those were punishable offenses as well. So all of a sudden you see the response here that there's a little bit of panic. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who are about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You see it there in the text there. It's a pretty intense moment. The tribune rushes down after this warning from the guy that was about to whip him was saying like, whoa, I want to check in and see if this is accurate. He asks him the question, Paul most likely had what a typical Roman citizen had was some kind of a small frame document, kind of like an ID that they would have there that he's like, yeah, here, here's the identification most likely displayed to this man. But all of a sudden you see this little dialogue where they're like, oh man, we need to step away and get him released as quick as possible before we have consequences ourselves. Love the cool little subplot there that the tribune confesses to something. Do you see it there in the text? What does the tribune confess to? He admits to having bought his citizenship. Citizenship was not something that was for sale, but could only be purchased with a large bribe, kind of shady behind the, the door. So he's like, yeah, I bribed and got mine. And Paul's like, not me. I was born with it. 
has born. He was born in the city of Tarsus, which was considered a free land. And by being born there, he actually had citizenship right out of the gates, literally elevating him above the tribune kind of in their social order because he's born with it, not purchasing it at a cost. But either way, pretty intense moment. And you notice the response. It says that the tribune was also afraid and that he withdrew from him. Have you noticed that in our culture, kind of the idea that this world's so often unsure what to do with a Christ follower? Sure, the, the, the world wants to, have you noticed that before? If you interact with somebody, as soon as it comes to light that you're following Jesus Christ, they're kind of like, oh, okay, things all of a sudden get really awkward. This uh, past week, uh, my daughter, it's so sad watching my daughters grow up so quickly, and they decided to sell a couple of their dollhouses, or actually one specifically, online on this Facebook buy, buy sell, trade. Do you guys ever do any of that stuff, or am I the only uh, cheapskate? But anyway, uh, so we're, we're trying to sell this. We have a family show up. I put it on in there. They're literally at my house like one hour after we had it listed. But this guy has his uh, wife and two little kids were just chatting about the, this and just making small talk. And uh, it felt like things were going really well in this interaction, you know? Like we're, we're going to be close friends, I'm sure. He's telling me about his job at Amgen and what he does there. And then, I, then he decides to ask, so, so what is it that you do? I was like, oh man, that's where things usually go south. And so I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually a pastor at a non-denominational church in, in Agora Hills. You, and starts kind of explaining a little bit about that. So interesting to watch his response. All of a sudden, the wife and kids, you know, tuck them behind, you know, hide the women and children because you don't know what this guy, like all of a sudden the safety factor just went down drastically. He's like, this is... And so all of a sudden, the transaction went really fast from there. Money exchanged, in-vehicle, gone. Because why? The world's not quite sure what to do with us. Not quite sure what to do with us. Are you, like, uh, are you guys, like, sacrificing animals there in Agora? Like, what, like what's going on? Uh, that, that's not true about me, by the way. But here's the thing, is we're in a world that's really not quite sure, and so often they'd prefer to avoid us if possible. Look in verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. We'll stop there in the text this morning, but I wanted to point out that this is a pretty interesting happening. You're kind of like, well, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. The way the system worked back then is basically the Roman government allowed the Jews to have what was called the Sanhedrin, which was kind of their governing body. They allowed the Sanhedrin to make decisions related to Jews, kind of like you, your Jewish stuff, you go deal with that. But Roman stuff would never be considered as something that would be brought before the Jewish high council. You're like, are you kidding me? There's kind of like the, the petty court of their day. So this idea of a, a Roman tribune, the one, the point person in that, that barracks there, coming and saying, hey, I'm going to gather the, the chief priests in the Sanhedrin to come to some conclusions about this Roman citizen's innocence or guilt was unheard of. That would be the most drastic uh, kind of crossing of lines that you would ever do. It would be an acknowledgement of them having the ability to come to some kind of a truth that would just not, it doesn't make sense. And for this was a display and just kind of confirming my point though that the world would so often prefer to what? 
Just avoid Christians. Because what do Christians do? Christians actually move someone to ask some tough questions about why they're here. What are they doing here? Why do they exist? Is there a God? Is there not a God? Is there someone that we're accountable to? What happens after this life is over? If you want to put it this way, we're kind of a tough pill to swallow. Anybody ever heard that expression before? I looked it up to find out the history or the meaning behind that expression, a tough pill to swallow. And guess what it was based on? It was found in the 1700s about having a hard time swallowing a pill. Yeah, so uh, real profound, I know. But here's the, aren't you glad I did the research? But here's the idea. Literally, there's something about our message that people are like, ah, that doesn't settle very well. Have you ever swallowed something that was a little too big and you got that, that, that feeling almost bruised in your throat? And that's really what the gospel message is because what is the gospel message saying? And we talked about it at the beginning of our message. It's telling somebody that they've fallen short of God's perfect standard, that that, that shortcoming leaves a separation between them and God and they can't fix it. And if you choose to fix it through Jesus Christ's death as payment in your life, what does that mean? You're elevating him as the leader of your life. And that's the thing that people, I would suggest, have the hardest time with, the idea of handing over the reins to someone else. We're a tough pill to swallow. We're no longer the one driving the ship, and we like to drive. That's hard for people to embrace. And so here, the avoidance is just the, the kind of the typical response of the non-believer to the believer. And it leaves us kind of with that awareness that, man, we need to be sensitive to that. Sometimes we kind of go through life and we're like, I don't really get it. I don't know why the whole world doesn't like Christians and why it seems like they're always against us and it feels like us versus them. And you're like, hey, let's be real with ourselves. You're a tough pill to swallow. In fact, tell your neighbor that. You're a tough pill to swallow. Some of you found great joy in saying that to your neighbor right now. Uh, Spouses, stop it. Uh, But here's the idea. We'll end with this. So what does this dual citizenship look like? Just a couple of practical ideas. Uh, these didn't originate with me. That's why they, they rhyme. But here's the obey, pay, pray. I love this idea that first off, when it comes to relating with the existing government and what's in place, we're called to obey unless it conflicts with what God's word tells us specifically. Obey, pay. You're like, pay what? Two things. One, pay respect to those in authority over us. That's a huge deal. I would say a growth area in the American church is respect to authority. How about the pay? The pay is the taxes. I love when Jesus was asked about taxes and he says, well, whose names or whose picture's on the coin? Caesar's. Well, then give it back to him. Like I love that the idea of not allowing the, the money and the things of this earth to have a grip on us. And the pray piece is maybe the, the common sense thing, but do we actually take advantage of that? Do we actually intercede on behalf of the people we're surrounded with that are entangled in a world system that doesn't embrace Christ? That's probably our greatest resource, more than even our our testimony and more than our example, is to be literally committed to elevating those around us in prayer. God, man, please do a work in their life, pleading on their behalf. God, soften their heart. Do what only your Holy Spirit can do. Open their eyes to the gospel message. All of those things are responsibilities and expectations for those of us living as dual citizens. And here's the the greatest thing that we get to do attached to that 
is we get to invite people to change citizenship. You don't have to stay in the kingdom that you're stuck in. You can actually redirect your citizenship. That's an awesome thing. You can actually turn your world upside down. And the ironic thing is, is the world thinks that the Christians are introducing an upside down kingdom. I would suggest just the opposite. If the God and the creator of the heavens that put things into place says that this is the right side up, who do you think's accurate, man or the creator? Here, what we're invited people to is getting things back to his initial design. All these things we're invited to do while we're careful not to get too comfortable because you're not home yet. It's kind of like a Cubs fan at the Dodgers stadium. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your word. Thank you for this example of navigating these obstacles that Paul handled so well. God, we just ask that you'd work in our lives and just allow us to understand what does it look like to have this dual citizenship? What does it look like to be in the world but not of the world? We need your Spirit's help to navigate that. Pray even going into the week ahead that there would be a a sensitivity to you for the leadings on how to do that. We can't do it on our own. We can't navigate this ourselves. How do we invite you to be at the center, the one that's ruling and reigning and guiding our steps? Give us more of a sensitivity to that, God, we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Again, thanks so much for being here this morning. At the end of the service, we have a couple volunteers here to pray for you if you'd like that. Otherwise, have a wonderful day. If you're newer here, we have the newcomer's lunch right here to follow in the well. God bless you.